Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Thursday. Let's dive in. Donald Trump has posted another one of his truth social diatribes uh, or addresses. You could call it a truth social address to make it more professional. Um, and this one is called Restoring Justice in America, a response to his legal troubles and wanting to get back at the entities he feels wronged by. And we'll discuss this more extensively after we take a look at the video, but what's being outlined here, and he touches a little bit on it, but it also represents the larger plan he's been outlining over the course of the last months about what a uh, possible second Trump presidency, which hopefully won't happen, but what that would look like. And a lot of it would be, as he's been saying during rallies, a retribution presidency. And so this is so bad for what it means about that hypothetical that hopefully will prevent from becoming a reality. Because when you have an individual who is set on getting back at the entities he feels checked his power or um, attempted to hold him accountable, uh, accountable legally or whatever it might be, and has learned the lessons as to which institutions, which positions within those institutions got in the way of his ambitions, then he'll make sure he doesn't make those same mistakes again. And that can yield very dangerous outcomes. So before we discuss further, here is this from Trump. There is no more dire threat to the American way of life than the corruption and weaponization of our justice system, and it's happening all around us. If we cannot restore the fair and impartial rule of law, we will not be a free country. As President, it will be my personal mission to restore the scales of justice in America. We want fairness and equality under the law, and to that end, I will appoint U.S. attorneys who will be the polar opposite of the Soros district attorneys and others that are being appointed throughout the United States. Very unfair to our population, very unfair to our country. They will be the 100 most ferocious legal warriors against crime and communist corruption that this country has ever seen. As we completely overhaul the Federal Department of Justice and FBI, we will all So stop it there, it gets into the normal stuff we've heard before. Um, and we'll watch a little bit more from this in a second. But there he's touching on U.S. attorneys, and then he gets to a full overhaul of the DOJ and FBI. And this is a part of the overall plan and ambition of Trump if he were to have a second term, which is to make sure at every level, whether it be the DOJ, FBI, um, whether it be the appointments he has in all these different areas or as we've seen in past videos him really wanting to get rid of the um part of the bureaucracy that functions relatively independently from the president and try to make it where the president has much more authority over each and every one of those individual positions hiring and firing why so that there is not the liability for someone like trump of people who aren't fully loyal to him fully um, under his direct authority. And if he can get in as many positions as possible, full Trump loyalists, not just people who have kind of a similar ideology or would be good for the position, but 
full Trump loyalists who would not challenge him in as many p positions within what is referred to as the bureaucracy, kind of what makes the government go every day, um, what drives that engine, does the day-to-day -day logistical work, or whether it be U.S. attorneys, whether it be generally the DOJ just having the ability, as we're seeing now, to legally hold him accountable, investigate him, which he very much doesn't like, and not having a Mike Pence as his vice president who may not go along with these very radical ambitions we saw. While he was on board with a lot of stuff, Mike Pence did draw the line at January 6th and not going along with the attempts to overturn the election. So I say all that to say Trump learned his lesson last time. He learned that a part of our government is there are checks and balances. And wherever he can, obviously he can't get rid of Congress, but wherever he can, he will attempt to implement Trump loyalists to make sure he's not challenged in whatever he wants to do and make sure as well that he is less likely to be legally held accountable for any criminal wrongdoing. That's definitely what's shaping up. That's why there's a, this obsession with the federal government being weaponized. And that's why we have to root out all these institutions. That's why we have to abolish, as Matt Gates has been calling for, um, it might be necessary, he says, to abolish the DOJ, FBI, etc., etc. Now let me play a little bit more from this and then we'll discuss further. We have to confront this radicalized law in schools. You take a look at what they've done to our schools, our beautiful schools. We have to reform the far-left bar associations and stop the purge of conservative lawyers from major law firms. I will do whatever it takes to save our legal system among the greatest achievements of Western civilization from the Marxist barbarians who seek to destroy it. And we will do that. We will save it. Thank you very much. So in the name of fighting back against the Marxist barbarians and um, rooting out the deep state and making sure the federal government's not being weaponized, you'll have an effort if Trump were to get a second term. We'll do everything possible to make sure that doesn't happen. But if it were to happen, he would definitely attempt to make sure every institution at every level of the government even in places where it's not currently the way that it's organized, where the president has this type of authority. Trump will attempt to make sure either you have a complete loyalist in these positions or the institution itself is damaged, weakened, dismantled. He's calling for the DOJ and FBI to be defunded. Um, and it highlights once again, we talked about in a previous segment, an interesting article that walked through this, the parallel we're watching what's taking place right now in israel with benjamin netanyahu trying to weaken the judicial system strengthen his uh power as prime minister and how what trump would try to do in weakening those institutions that provide that check on his power would likely be similar similar there's a parallel there that should be concerning um and all of it is definitely not something we want to see turn into a reality I have for you something that is genuinely disturbing. Republican state representative in Florida, Webster Barnaby, went on an anti-trans rant that, it, I mean, the, the hateful rhetoric toward transgender people has gotten so far, so dangerous, and 
This exemplifies that in a very dangerous, disturbing way. I will show you and then we will discuss. I'm, I'm looking at society today and it's like I'm... And in case you're wondering, to give you a little bit of context, we'll get to the reporting on him um, apologizing. And he does confirm, because he doesn't say specifically uh, transgender people in this clip, he does confirm that whenever you hear him use the terms demons and mutants, he is directly attacking trans people. He confirms that is who he's talking about. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at society today and it's like I'm watching an X-Men movie uh, with people that when you watch the X-Men movies for Marvel comics, it's like we have mutants living among us on planet Earth. And, you know, some people don't like that, but that's a fact. We have people that live among us today on planet Earth that are happy to display themselves as if they were mutants from another planet. This is the planet Earth, where God created men, male, and women, female. I'm a proud Christian conservative Republican. I'm not on the fence. Not on the fence. There is so much darkness in our world today. So much evil in our world today. And so many people who are afraid to address the evil, the dysphoria, the dysfunction. I'm not afraid to address the dysphoria or the dysfunction. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, and all of your demons and all of your imps who come and parade before us. That's right, I called you demons and imps who come and parade before us and pretend that you are part of this world. So I'm, I'm saying my righteous indignation is stirred. I am sick and tired of this. We, I'm not going to put up with it. You can test me and try to take me on. But I promise you I'll win every time. Let's all vote up on this bill. Thank you. The bill he's referencing is another one of these bathroom bills. But at the end there, he says, you can come after me. You can test me. I'm going to win. You're going to win what? You're going to win what? Your one-sided attack? Your one-sided dehumanization? Demonization? Literally calling people demons? You're going to win that? Does that make you feel tough? <clears throat> you're going to go after a group of people who's already consistently, constantly, uh, ruthlessly being dehumanized. You're going to jump on that hateful bandwagon and that makes you feel better. That makes you feel tough. His apology, quote, I would like to apologize to the trans community for referring to you as demons. The trans community, that's who he was talking about there. So much hate. He is blinded by his hate. And all of it, why? Why does he believe human beings are deserving of that language being spoken about them? Just because they exist. Just because they exist and they're, sorry, and they're trying to live their life and be who they are. 
That's what deserves that in his mind. It is sick. And crossing that line is dangerous. That rhetorical line is dangerous. And then for him to think that he's on the side of science or something. If you think people who are advocating on the on uh, behalf of and standing up for trans people don't recognize, understand much better than Webster Barnaby, the science of biological sex, then clearly you don't have an understanding of what's even being talked about. We recognize biological sex. If you think that's not uh, the case, then clearly you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know what world you're living in. And it's yet another example as to why I don't have an interest in talking with individuals like Webster Barnaby about nuanced, complex subjects in relation to the transgender community or gender and sex generally. I just don't have an interest because the hate is so much more powerful than an ambition to understand. He will choose hate 10 times out of 10 over actually understanding where his, what he thought was a logical bit of analysis went wrong. So no, you're not on the side of facts or logic. No, you're not on the si side of science. You're just on the side of hate. And I can't imagine, I really can't imagine for people living in any place in the country, but in Florida specifically in regard to this, looking up at who should be a leader, a political leader, spewing that hate. I am so sorry on behalf of humanity that that's the reality you have to live in if you're a transgender person. I'm so sorry. It is sickening. It's unnecessary. It's inhumane, unbelievable to me, and sickening. Republican Senator Tim Scott has created, as we talked about on yesterday's show, an exploratory committee for president, meaning he's taking the step right before formally announcing his 2024 presidential bid, jumping into that GOP primary. And so because of this, making news with that announcement, he's getting asked questions from the media and the issue of a national abortion ban comes up. Would he support something like a national abortion ban? And his answer is a word salad like I have not seen in a very long time. Holy smokes. And this represents, and we'll, you know, we'll get this clip, of course, um, this represents the predicament that so many of these Republicans are in now, where their base, or part of their base, wants them to be very radical on the issue of abortion with wanting to ban it, for example. But that's not going to win a national election. And so, yeah, they're having a hard time figuring out what they're supposed to say when they're asked questions like this. And this is what we got from Tim Scott. Yes, sir. Would you support a federal ban on abortions? I would simply say that um, the fact of the matter is when you look at the issue of abortion, one of the challenges that we have, we continue to go to the most restrictive conversations without broadening the scope and taking a look at the fact that I'm 100% pro-life. Uh, I never walk away from that. But the truth of the matter is that when you look at the issues on abortion, I start with the very important conversation I had in a banking hearing when I was sitting in my office and listening to Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, talk about increasing the labor force participation rate for African-American women who are in poverty by having abortions. Uh, I think we're just having the wrong conversation. I ran yes, sir. What? The question was, sir, do you support a national abortion ban? 
I'll respond more uh, after I show you another example of this during a CVS interview. I mean, stunning word salad. You have talked a lot about your faith on the campaign trail as well. Um, I want to ask you about your stance on whether the federal government should be involved in regulating abortion. Your colleague from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, has a bill to limit uh, abortions at 15 weeks, federal restriction. Do you support that measure? Yeah, so I, I would say this, that I am certainly 100% pro-life, without any question. I've been okay, he says that now, but then later, when she goes, okay, so that means that you're for the ban, he goes, no. So just to hold. I'm very, very clear about that, very uh, consistent about that. I, I do think we spend not enough time understanding how far the far left has gone on the issue of abortion. Uh -huh. Interesting, because we were wondering where you stand on the issue of abortion, though. Not the far left on an abortion ban where you stand on an abortion ban. The Senate Democrats have voted for late-term abortions well into the third trimester, some even suggesting that we should have abortion up until the day of birth. The, the fact that we are one of a handful of countries that allows for late-term abortions is a challenging uh, predicament for us to be in. But in order to solve... Okay, instead of me getting on a whole rant right now, I'm going to address the dishonest talking point there after we watch the back and forth go forward a little a little more but such a tired and dishonest talking point that do you think the federal government should be involved with uh, something like what Lindsey Graham is proposing. Yeah, there, there's no question that we're going to have lots of folks talk about legislation um, from a federal perspective but what I've heard so far and what I've seen in the Senate aren't proposals but votes from the left trying to figure out how to continue their campaign towards late-term abortions, even allowing abortions. Wait, what are you voting on if nobody's putting forward proposals? Votes from the left trying to... Okay. Towards late-term abortions. Again, I'll get to the late-term abortions thing in just a second. Even allowing abortions based on the gender of the child or the race of the child or the disabilities of the child. But as, a pre as president, if you were president, would you advocate for federal limits? Yeah. So once again, I, I once again, I'm 100% pro-life, and I, I do believe so, yes. that. No, that's not what I said. I, I do believe that we should have a robust conversation about what's happening in the on a. My goodness. Okay. Oh, he says that's not what I said. Yeah, but you're not saying anything. So we're trying to derive meaning from all those words um, to talk about the late-term abortion thing. It's so dishonest. What they're trying to do is create a perception of a problem about a problem that doesn't exist. And what is that problem that they're trying to um, instill a belief about <clears throat> in people? What they want you to believe is that women, we have this problem in America where women wait all the way until the ninth month. They go through the physical, biological processes of creating another being for nine months. They go through the physical strain of that for nine months. They undergo all of it. Month after month, they decide not to have an abortion when it would be easier on their body. And then they get to the ninth month and they go, all right, never mind. Uh, that's what they want you to believe. Obviously, that's absurd. What does happen in terms of uh, late-term abortions is when it's medically necessary, the life health of the mother is at stake. And medical professionals, in consultation with the woman, make that decision based on the complex variables at play there 
that can cause complications in the pregnancy, the fetus no longer being viable, the life of the mother being at stake, um, relating to those situations. And that is the only thing that's being discussed here, or should be getting discussed, but they want to create this caricature of a woman who just randomly is <laughs> what went through all that and shrambling. Never mind. Um, and then they'll bring up other countries and say other countries have bans earlier than we do. Yeah, but see, the countries they'll reference, you look at their laws and they explicitly say, unless it's deemed necessary medically um, for the life, health of the, the mother by medical professionals in consultation with the woman. Not by the Republican politician, by the medical professionals. Because it's not as simple as a light turns on on the top of your head that says, my life is now being threatened enough for you to give me an abortion, a late-term abortion. It's more complex than that. And so the nuanced decision about when the threat is severe, what the realities are at play, what's the best for the well-being, for the health of the woman, all of that has to be taken into consideration by someone who can synthesize that information properly and then the best decision is made and um they ignore that reality and they ignore the question in the case of tim scott that they get asked about abortion goodness goodness gracious he's gonna have to come up with an answer eventually because he will keep getting asked it former fox news host bill o'reilly appeared on chris cuomo's show on news nation to discuss the dominion defamation lawsuit against his former employer, Fox News. And uh, I am not a fan of Bill O'Reilly. I dislike him. It was an interesting conversation, though, because of uh, his role or former role at Fox News to hear him say he thinks this is a catastrophe for them. Take a look. What we're seeing with Dominion, I'm not in the business of wishing ill. I think that suit probably settles. I am shocked they've let it go as far as they have, especially when they're obviously worried about what they're disclosing, as we saw uh, the judge pointing out today. Um, they got caught doing what they always do. And aren't you surprised that they're playing at going to trial? These people are gonna to have to testify a little bit. that I just had. Are you really gonna put your anchor in the chair with a trained litigator who is gonna rip them to shreds? Okay, let me make a few points about this. Jury selection starts tomorrow, first mm -hmm. testimony on Monday. Rupert Murdoch will be called very quickly um, and a good lawyer will not make him look good. There's no doubt about it. So you would think that Rupert Murdoch who calls the shots um, we try to settle. So now I believe that Dominion didn't want to settle. That Dominion mm. believes it's going to win its case. And in, on top of the $1.6 it's asking, the jury of regular folks will give it punitive damages as well, which could lift it up to $2 billion. Now, a federal judge will bust that down. Um, but it's a catastrophe for the Fox News channel. There's Is no it? doubt. No, no cameras in a courtroom are that's a benefit to fox okay we'll stop it there but it's an interesting point to think 
why hasn't this case been settled yet? Because Fox News has to have wanted that. Maybe it's because Dominion doesn't and they think they can win. And it's gotten this far and we've seen all the things that are already coming out about it. I think they could win. And I think that would be so significant accountability for the lies that were spread knowingly on Fox News. And I've said it before, but if we're going to have defamation, how does this not apply? Now, if you want to say we shouldn't have defamation as um, even a legal process, a legal uh, recourse, then that's a different argument. But if we're going to have defamation lawsuits, this has to fall within that. Come on. I mean, we have behind the scenes the hosts laughing about and making fun of and freaking out over the absurd claims being made by individuals who then they were bringing on air and helping them to perpetuate those very lies and things being said by the hosts themselves were lies and everyone at Fox knew it. If you can gather uh, evidence of clear lies being told that are clearly lies on air consistently um, and also set next to that private communications, text messages, emails of them going, oh, can you believe all that stuff is being said? It's absurd. That has to be defamation, right? Come on. And then clearly it was doing damage. I mean, Dominion Voting Systems has experienced significant uh, damage, not to mention the uh, threats that have been sent their way because of all these conspiracy theories. So we'll see how it all goes. Really fascinated to see and excited that an actual trial is coming up. Maybe we actually will see something that's not super common when covering American politics. Accountability for lies. Audio recordings of Rudy Giuliani and a campaign official for Donald Trump were provided by former Fox News producer Abby Grossberg to MSNBC host Alex Wagner that are pretty fascinating and further highlight the fact that those making the claims about all these different things with the election after Trump lost and before he left office, that period of time that is getting focused on a lot because of the Dominion defamation lawsuit against Fox News and all of that, they knew they didn't have the evidence for the things that they were saying. Um, take a look at this from Mediate and then we'll listen to the recordings. MSNBC's Alex Wagner aired potentially devastating recordings of Rudy Giuliani and a campaign official for Donald Trump telling Fox News they lacked receipts regarding the foreign president's claims about fraud in the 2020 election. The recordings were provided by former Fox News producer Abby Grossberg, who has filed two lawsuits of her own against her employer. She alleges the network allowed a, um, a culture of sexual harassment and misogyny. Dominion's lawyers argue the recording should have been handed over during discovery. The judge in the case agreed and sanctioned Fox for withholding evidence. Whew. Um, and then here is this from Alex Wagner's show. And this is a recording of Maria Bartiromo on the phone with Rudy Giuliani. I'm going to be asking you as, for as much evidence as you can tell us about these lawsuits. Whatever you can tell us in terms of sure. evidence would be really helpful. Okay, great. I can tell you exactly what we have. Perfect. And 
streaming in software. That's that's a little harder troubling. to tell you right. It's being it's anal, being analyzed right now. I mean, there are a couple of races that have been reversed because uh, the Democrat was triple counted two two already in Michigan. Now, whether that applies for the whole state or not, I I can't tell you yet. This Dominion software does Nancy Pelosi have an interest in it? I, yeah, I've read that. I don't. I, I can't prove that. Yet. Okay. Can't prove that. That was Rudy Giuliani, the fake. Mm-hmm. So that's the first, and this is a uh, Trump campaign official. Are any of the machines, I know it was on War Room the other day with Steve Bannon, have any of the machines been looked at? He had said that one was looked at in Georgia. Fox News producer talking to a Trump campaign official. Uh, I'd have to check on that in terms of Georgia. I know during the audit they did check on those machines. Um, they're really, you know, the, the, if we just go off the record for one sec here. Yeah, it should, of course. Um, I, I, want, I don't want us to say it if it's not. That's why we're yeah, checking. I would, I would, I would, I think they have looked at the machines. Uh, when, the, when the Secretary of State did its audit, uh, there, there was a lot, of, I think a fair bit of looking at the machines. Um, you know, the audit came in pretty darn close to what the machine count was with the receipts. So, you know, I don't know the outcome of those, but our understanding, again, this is from the Secretary of State's office, is that there weren't any physical issues with machines on those inspections. And then Alex Wagner highlights that that was December uh, 5th, 2020. Also on December 5th, 2020, while the Trump campaign official was going, you know, they did the audit and uh, essentially everything was on the up and up. These uh, machines were not fraudulently giving votes to Biden. But Trump was saying this on that same day. In one Michigan county using Dominion voting systems, nearly 6,000 votes were discovered that were wrongly switched from Trump to Biden. They called it a glitch. You know, a glitch, that's like the machine broke. Numerous times we found glitches, and every single time the glitch went 100% to Biden and no percent to Trump. The same system. So his own campaign, his own campaign officials, on that day recognizing, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> we don't have evidence, um, seems to be the case that it was, it was uh, secure. And Trump saying, that and beyond that as we've talked about in the past trump's team hired researchers to go look into the very states that they were making all these claims about and try to find voter fraud widespread voter fraud let's get the evidence the researchers looked into it they could not find evidence for the claims trump was making and trump kept going with that that was after he lost the election before January 6th, and uh, he got the information back before January 6th, before his call with Brad Raffensperger from these researchers, and kept making the claims anyways. It was the researchers he paid telling him it's not true. And still, he's making the claims. And it's dangerous. It's not lying about something insignificant. That's lying about our democracy. And over a long enough period of time, you just can't have a functioning democracy if enough people believe it's not functioning.
correctly. If enough people believe the only way an election is fair is if their person wins, which is where a lot of people are at now within the GOP, the only way it wasn't stolen is if their person wins. That's not going to function for um, forever. And right now, 63% of Republicans believe Biden's election win was illegitimate. That's a lot of people. Not because there's evidence, but because these claims keep being made by people that they trust. They shouldn't trust them, but they do. And they buy, uh, they buy into these lies, and now we are where we are in terms of the threat to our democracy. New reporting out reveals that federal prosecutors are investigating Trump as a part of um, the multiple aspects of this investigation for possibly violating wire fraud laws. As we dive into this, you'll notice it's actually very interesting and makes a whole lot of sense, but not something I would have initially expected. Here from the Washington Post, federal prosecutors probing the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol have in recent weeks saw a wide range of documents related to fundraising after the 2020 election, looking to determine if former President Donald Trump or his advisors scammed donors by using false claims about voter fraud to raise money. The fundraising prong of the investigation is focused on money raised during the period between November 3, 2020 and the end of Trump's time in office on January 20, 2021. And prosecutors are said to be interested in whether anyone associated with the fundraising operation violated wire fraud laws, which make it illegal to make false representations over email to swindle people out of money. The new subpoenas received since the beginning of March, which have not been previously reported, show the breadth of Smith's investigation as Trump embarks on a campaign and it continues on from there. But false representations over email to swindle people out of money. The only thing that would be tough about that is, could you tie Trump directly enough to the emails themselves because someone on his team was actually writing them? But zoomed out, Trump and his orbit, his operation, they were pumping out lies about the election. So his followers were buying into them, donating a bunch of money based on those lies that were written out in these emails. Maybe that's going to be um, a successful approach on the part of the prosecutors. Very interesting. And things just seem to be getting worse for Trump every day in the legal department. We have more bombshell reporting from ProPublica on the improper friendship uh, dynamic between GOP mega donor billionaire Harlan Crow and Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Before we get into the most recent reporting on this that is pretty significant, uh, the first piece that came out from ProPublica revealed that Clarence Thomas had been accepting all these gifts and lavish trips and hadn't been disclosing that information. And uh, laws that were implemented after Watergate say that you're supposed to disclose when you're getting uh, gifts of certain kinds. And again, Clarence Thomas did not. Now, and also the significant hundreds of thousands of dollars that was being spent on his behalf for these lavish trips, he did not uh, make that information known. Now we have this from ProPublica. In 2014, one of Texas billionaire Harlan Crow's companies purchased a string of properties on a quiet residential street in Savannah, Georgia. It wasn't a marquee acquisition for the real estate magnate, just an old single-story home and two vacant lots down the road. What made it noteworthy were the people on the other side of the deal, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his relatives. 
The transaction marks the first known instance of money flowing from the Republican mega donor to the Supreme Court justice. The Crow Company bought the properties for $133,363 from three co-owners, Thomas, his mother, and the family of Thomas's late brother. The purchase put Crow in an unusual position. He now owned the house where the justice's elderly mother was living, and it talks about how they did a bunch of renovations. A federal disclosure law passed after Watergate, Watergate requires justices and other officials to disclose the details of most real estate sales over $1,000. Thomas never disclosed his sale of the Savannah properties. That appears to be a violation of the law for ethics law experts told ProPublica. So now money's actually changing hands and he's not disclosing that. That's pretty significant um, whenever that's supposed to be something that he's doing. Just a little bit more. The disclosure form Thomas filed for that year also had a space to report the identity of the buyer in any private transaction, such as a real estate deal. That space is blank. Quote, he needed to report his interest in the sale, said Virginia Cantor, a former government ethics lawyer now at the Watchdog Group crew. Given the role Crow has played in subsidizing the lifestyle of Thomas and his wife, you have to wonder if this was an effort to put cash in their pockets and that's the concern and that's why these laws are on the books and clearly there needs to be more enforcement or more laws or more applied to the supreme court more enforcement with the supreme court because we can't have supreme court justices um having this possible conflict of interest that's just not something we want to have to worry about, where a billionaire could come along, spend all this money for you, all these bougie things for you, and make you more likely to side with their interest instead of the law. And that is what could have happened here. You could say they're just friends and it just has happened this way, but there's no way for the American public to know that. This looks a whole lot like Clarence Thomas is getting wined and dined to an extreme level and possibly having his views shift on a few of those interpretations of the law when it comes time to help out the interests of both Harlan Crow and those who he was being surrounded by, Harlan Crow's business friends. Um, and whether or not you think Clarence Thomas was influenced or not doesn't matter. It's the perception that matters. And it's important for Supreme Court justices to have the perception of legitimacy the institution and when you're doing stuff like this clearly not wanting people to know about it that's why you're not disclosing it it decreases the belief in the legitimacy of the supreme court it's hard to believe that uh clarence thomas is going to be able to approach these types of cases impartially both cases relating to maybe things that affect his buddy here or <laughs> cases that relate to his wife's conspiracy theories um as he refused to take himself off of that one. Really, really wild. Great job from ProPublica. Yet another example, on top of him being a right-wing justice, also being unqualified in these ways. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. I'll see you tomorrow.